0: This podcast is brought to you by ClearBridge Investments. Meet an evolving economy confidently with ClearBridge Active Equities, the foundation of a resilient portfolio. ClearBridge, a Franklin Templeton company. Go to clearbridge.com to learn more. What do Morgan Stanley, BlackRock, Schwab, Vanguard, and Franklin Templeton have in common? They're all rushing into direct indexing, which is projected to grow at an annualized rate of more than 12% for several years which is faster than ETFs, mutual funds, and SMAs, according to Cerulli Associates. Here to explain what's driving this and what this means for advisors and their clients is Patrick O'Shaughnessy, the founder of custom indexing platform Canvas and host of the popular and well-regarded Invest Like the Best podcast. Patrick, welcome.
1: Greg, thank you so much for having me. Uh,
0: My pleasure. Now, there's a lot to cover, and I'm hoping and assuming most of our uh, listeners know what direct indexing is, but let's just be safe and cover that. So can you provide a clear explanation of what direct indexing is and what custom indexing is?
1: Yeah, I was going to say not to throw a wrench in the conversation right from the jump, but I do think that that difference between direct and custom indexing is important. So I'll address both. Direct indexing has been around for a very long time. Probably the the earliest example of it is a firm called Parametric, which has been doing this since the 90s. And the concept is really, really simple. So if you believe that the S&P 500, for example, is a good investment, a direct index version of the S&P 500 would be instead of buying the ETF or the mutual fund, you in a separate account for each client, let's say or each investor, by the underlying holdings of the S&P 500. So you're getting roughly the same exposure and you do tax loss harvesting on top of that uh, Investment. So you try to generate after-tax returns that are, you know, one percent, let's say, better than the S and P 500 itself. So all you're doing is take advantage, taking advantage of the fact that some stocks go down, others go up. The ones that go down, you sell some of, generate a usable tax loss for the benefit of the investor, reinvested in similar securities, have a similar diversification profile, and so on. So really, direct indexing, in my mind, is synonymous. With this idea of tax loss harvesting, um, for some reason, you know it's a different different name, but it's basically that core concept. I think custom indexing, the thing that we're excited to have brought to the world with can with the Canvas platform, takes that quite a bit further. And custom is the operative word here, which is really to, to have tax loss harvesting as a key part of what you do. So always be trying to generate the best after tax returns, but instead build an index that is completely customized to the individual investor based on their circumstances and their preferences. So what does that mean? Well, everyone's got a different tax situation, everyone's got a different risk situation, everyone has different preferences for kinds of securities they may wanna own more of or less of, ESG might be one way of thinking about uh, these emerging preferences. Uh, Everyone's a little bit different and that's probably the number one thing that we've learned launching Canvas is that some people, uh, most people in fact, that use the platform 80% or so, do some tweak to their custom strategy that we haven't seen before. Uh, Meaning the DNA of their strategy is completely distinct and unique, sort of like a unique fingerprint or something. And we don't force them to do that. So customization is being adopted very organically to adjust for all sorts of things from tax profile to ESG preferences to asset allocation and strategy and factor preferences. Um, So our, our, our vision of the future is one where everyone has their own strategy um, that's tailored to them, which makes it easier to stick with, easier to adjust and, and ride through changing times. Um, and that's what we're excited about. But tax loss harvesting and direct indexing is a critical component of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would just say it's sort of the last generation of this same concept.
0: And what's behind the rise of custom indexing? Because it's all—it's really fascinating how many firms are really just flooding in full bore. And I not that long ago, there was I don't know if, if you want to say a lot of skepticism, but it, w- it wasn't crystal clear that this might happen. At least to some, to many, so I guess not you, certainly. But tell me what, what's you know behind the rise.
1: Well, I think uh, if you if you study the history of investing writ large, it actually is a history of technology changes. Um, if, if if you like me were to view something like the limited liability corporation as almost like a legal technology that unlocked all sorts of incredible things in the world of of business and shared risk. You could argue that Bogle and the uh, the index fund were one such uh, innovation, that the mutual fund itself, co-mingled vehicles, were another such innovation, and that really the march of investing technology or innovation has been towards better solutions for actual end investors. So lower costs, um, you know, better sharing of risk, uh, more diversification, like all the benefits that we've seen come originally with the mutual fund, then with the index fund, then with direct indexing. And I would just say this is just the natural next stage in that mm-hmm. same evolution, um, that it's enabled completely by software and technology. So the reason this is coming out of nowhere is even three or four years ago, this would have been basically impossible to do at scale. Uh, but with all the modern technology and software tools, we can have a situation where we've got thousands of accounts where they all have their own unique strat- uh, strategic settings that we have to maintain and rebalance and trade against, etc. And it's entirely because of what's enabled by software. So I, I think this is just the natural progression in an in arrow an of progress that's been happening, you know, dating all the way back to the first mutual fund. It, it's just providing a better solution to the end investor. So what are the dimensions of better? Uh, you know, well, it's return, obviously. It's risk, it's cost. Um, I think Bogle's great innovation, uh, innovation or realization was that cost matters and costs compound. So you want these things to be very low cost and tax loss harvesting or tax alpha, whatever you want to call it, is like a way of getting more dollars after tax back into the investor's pocket. So um, I don't think this is anything that interesting in the sense that it's just a continuation of trends that have been in place for a long time that are trying to deliver a better overall solution to the end investor.
0: Now let's talk about custom indexing vis-a-vis um, ETFs. I believe you once asserted that custom indexing will unbundle the ETF. Can you speak to that, and also, you know, to what extent
1: and what might be the timeline or trajectory?
0: I mean, it's a difficult question, admittedly. But
1: sure, I actually think it's very simple. Um, so if you buy that there are benefits of customization, meaning that people want to make tweaks to their strategy, they want to own you know, more of a value factor or more of a momentum factor, or they want less of Europe in their portfolio for some reason, or whatever the thing is that they want to tweak for whatever reason. Uh, If you buy that customization is good, um, then really the question is what let's compare ETFs or fund structures to separate account structures. The benefits of an ETF are that there's big scale, right? So you can share the scale economies generated, you know, from a, a BlackRock or something, and have much lower prices to access, say, the S and P 500. So there's a scale advantage, and there's a tax advantage in higher turnover strategies. So if you put a momentum strategy, a pure momentum strategy, behind an ETF wrapper, it's a much better tax consequence for the end, you know, retail taxable investor or taxable investor of any kind than if you did it in a separate account. The other end of the spectrum is that it's one size fits all. Like By definition, it's a commingled vehicle, so you can't make adjustments to an ETF strategy to map onto an individual investor's needs, or not even an individual, a pension fund's needs. It could be any investor. There's no changing them. It's one size fits all. Um, And there's potentially tax disadvantages, which I'll get to in a second, at the very low turnover end of the spectrum, which is what tax loss harvesting was you know, uh, created to capture and deliver to investors again, but dating back to the 1990s. So my concept of unbundling the ETF is if it's an ETF that has relatively speaking low turnover, which most of them do, and there are benefits of customization and technology allows separate accounts to not be that expensive. And they're not like our, our marginal cost per separate account is extremely low. Like I would hope that we can get it below a hundred dollars on an annual basis. Um, so the, the scale economy advantage from the operation side is just not, if not totally gone on its way out uh, to a large extent. And the after-tax benefit of low turnover strategies with tax loss harvesting is a real advantage versus, you know, a co-mingled vehicle. So I don't, I don't forecast that ETFs are going away. I mean, there's, they're definitely not. They're great vehicles for tons of people. Um, they will they'll be long-term holdings for tons of people, but we've already seen in many cases, our clients coming into us and saying we have an allocation to you know the blank dividend etf can you replicate the strategy which of course we can we're quants and all the index methodologies are public usually we can improve the strategy from like a you know a a factor standpoint and then unlock all these benefits of loss harvesting and customization on top of it so i'm not just guessing at this unbundling like we've Mm -hmm. literally had it be a major request and done it many times where we've gone after the the principal goal of you know let's say it's dividends, we can design a better dividend strategy, and then you get these other benefits on top of it. So that's what I mean when I say unbundling is for low turnover strategies where customization can be powerful. Why wouldn't you go with a separate account and get have your cake and eat it too?
0: And is there a certain client profile for which um, direct indexing might not make sense to to have you know not enough assets to justify the um, added complexity or work involved?
1: Look, I, I'm a firm believer that. Investors should do what they can stick with and what they understand. Uh, so the extent to which this creates some real or perceived complexity that the investor just doesn't get. Um, and look, there's sometimes there's tracking error in these strategies. So your, your performance won't be the exact same as the S&P 500 every year, every quarter, every month. Mm-hmm. Um, so if, if that's a problem, like just buy the SPY uh, and keep it very, very simple. Um, I also think that the current limitations are real in the sense that too small of an account, you know. Doing that, we couldn't do this with a ten thousand dollar account. Um, you know, we're getting there on being able to do it with a hundred thousand dollar account. Right now, our minimum is two hundred fifty thousand. So these are big accounts on average that we're doing it with today. That will change with technology, though, and it's our that that march is happening. Like, there's no, there's no, there's no turning back on that. Like fractionalized share trading, you know, the low cost of trading at most brokerages. All of these things are nice complements to custom indexing. Mm-hmm. So I would envision a world in which, you know, five years from now, to pick a random number this is accessible to somebody in in a lot of ways, maybe not in every way, but in a lot of the same ways that has a $10,000 account. um, And we're working our way towards that.
0: Right. I know Fidelity with its uh, Fidfolios is coming out with a very low minimum. Um, So it seems like, right, the trend will be lower over time. Yes. Agreed. Also, in terms of the growth, according to a report by Morgan Stanley and Oliver Wyman, um, direct indexing is expected to control 1.5 trillion in assets by 2025. And that's roughly triple levels from 2020. So yeah, the the, the trajectory is pretty clear directionally,
1: at least. I, I Maybe if I could offer a comment there, I, I think that's drastically understated. And the reason I say that is, uh, first of all, these, these kind of industry-wide surveys, I think are almost never accurate. And um, it, not because of the fault of the forecaster; it's just an unbelievably hard thing to forecast. Mm-hmm. Um, there's so, so much going on that that leads into the actual outcome. But from our own experience, we're seeing firms that adopt this first adopt it for like the most complicated client. Let's say you know someone with the most special needs, some some unique problem to solve, some you know concentrated stock position that we need to help them manage out of, which is something that Custom Index can do you know uniquely well. And then as soon as they adopt it, it starts to th- spread across the whole equity book of the RIA that we are working with. And mm-hmm. the adoption is is not linear, right? Like this is not a linear trend. Like this is a this is a major practice decision that many RIAs are making. And they're in in some cases we're seeing like basically every new dollar of equity investments that comes through an RIA goes onto Canvas. And when you have a platform like that that becomes just like a policy decision, I, I think that the assets can ramp much faster then you would draw out in sort of like a linear extrapolation, which mm-hmm. I think is how a lot of these surveys are, are built. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I would expect the number to be ext- extremely high across the industry.
0: Okay. And can you briefly just talk about um, the creation of Canvas and the O'Shaughnessy Asset Management that sailed to Franklin Templeton?
1: Sure. Uh, so much of my interest in business could be summed up by studying the Amazon Web Services story, which I'm sure a lot of listeners will be at least somewhat familiar with or they'll have heard of it. And the story is really simple which is that amazon always has been an incredible operations focused business uh, with an unbelievable underlying complexity to get us all you know the two-day shipping and the million other things that they do for us mm-hmm. and part of that was managing digital you know the digital side of the business and they had built up incredible expertise in managing that for themselves. They even actually had a foray into potentially managing like websites like for companies like Target uh, in their very early days that was ultimately abandoned. But what they realized with Amazon Web Services was, okay, we've got a massive cost center that we can turn into a revenue opportunity. Because if we need all this servicing, um, you know, cl- basically what we now call the cloud, to run our operations, well, why don't we offer that same thing as a product to other companies? And our, we studied that in depth Um, Because we had built up, like Amazon, a crazy amount of what I would call cost center technology at OSAM to run our quantitative equity, you know, investment and research process. So we had been around a long time, you know, managing many billions of dollars um, in in sort of active quantitative strategies, factor based. And I think the insight was, wow, like my joke was always we'd built a Death Star to shoot a mouse. Like we had built this incredible technology platform for research and trading and rebalancing and back testing, and performance, custom performance reporting and all this other stuff. And we had built all this tech and we were using it for one very narrow purpose. So the question became, what if we turned this over to our outside partners? Like what if we gave them the keys to the DESR, so to speak, and see what they did with it. And that's kind of the the conceptual way that Canvas was born was to say, we're using this for one reason, let's see what other people might use our same toolkit for. Um, and, and what we found, as I said, is that they loved it. They started using it for all sorts of ways that we couldn't have imagined at the beginning. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's proven to be very powerful as a result. So we built an initial uh, web-based software platform that feels very much like building a Tesla online or something. So if you've ever, if you wanna know what Canvas feels like to use, just go build a, go build a BMW or a Tesla online. Um, it sort of walks you through some very beautiful screens of um, software that are kind of easy to intuit, And lead you through a whole bunch of different choices that you can customize as you build your unique strategy. And uh and that's how it was born. So it was born in, you know, 2019 or so is at the end of 2019 is when we really started taking opening client accounts. Um it started to scale very quickly, um, from you know, no assets to, you know, over two billion um in, in pretty short order. And We started partnering with firms we had never even been able to get in the door with before, to be totally honest with you, uh, because we were providing a platform holistic solution, not just a point solution as part of their portfolio. Um, So I think Franklin, uh, to give them enormous credit, saw the potential in our platform. Obviously, they bring ridiculous scale resources that we just didn't have. We were and are a relatively small team, you know, 40 to 50 people, uh, they're, they're a trillion and a half of assets and, you know, relationship with every investor in the world and, um, crazy data and technology resources and a, a senior team that wants to win in this category. I mean, you know, they're, they bring a bazooka to a knife fight, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And they approached us with, with this idea for partnership, um, that we explored and, and consummated last year. And, uh, here we are today. So, uh, it, it moved pretty fast, but, It was built, Canvas was built on a decade's worth of software and technology that we had built for our own purposes, Mm -hmm. sort of in the spirit of that Amazon Web Services story.
0: Okay, and and at the time of the, uh, sale, is it correct that roughly 30 percent of your uh, assets were in direct in- indexing? Is that ballpark
1: right? Yeah, that's that, that sounds about right. Yeah.
0: Let's let's pivot a little to investing. What
1: are some of the trends? What are you seeing? What do what are investors looking for right now? Uh well, I mean, look, it's this is going to be an unoriginal answer because I'm sure everyone would say the same. With what's going on in the world, I think everyone is just incredibly mindful of risk right now, and. Uh, that comes after a period, a long period of time, even with the, you know, terrible, vicious, you know, instant bear market we had at the start of COVID where we bounced back very quickly from it, even taking that into account, markets have effectively been up into the right. Like the right decision has been to put more risk on for a very long time. And the right decision in the face of any instability in markets has been to double down on risk yet again. And I think what we're seeing now is with inflation, um, handicapping the Federal Reserve and what they can do to inject liquidity into the system um, with the inflation that's resulted maybe from the fiscal response from COVID. Everyone is just wondering like, are the things that made that true still going to be true in the future? And there seems to be a lot of instability in the world, um, geopolitical, you know, markets, valuations are still arguably pretty pretty high. Um, so that's the number one thing I hear on people's minds, on investors' minds is how can we adjust for or create a lower risk strategy. So like, for example, one of the most popular new things on Canvas has been to allocate to something that we call uh, defense and stability. And the, the concept here is like better downside protection, lower volatility um, strategies as a factor that you can bake into your Canvas strategy if you're an mm-hmm. investor. And you know it's been popular, I think, because of the core idea, but also because it's done really well through a period like this um, when there's been vicious drawdowns in expensive growth stocks. And you know, f- fairly muted small drawdowns in say like value large cap equities, mm-hmm. you know that are in the single digit still. It, it, this is not even really a correction um, in in those kind of more defensive type stocks. So uh, that's probably been the single most popular trend or theme. Again, I realize I'm not saying anything unique or interesting there, mm-hmm. uh, but that but that is what shows up in our data.
0: Right. I mean, year to date, the Nasdaq's down close to eighteen percent. S and P five hundred about twelve. Vanguard, just using the VTV ETF as a proxy, it's down about four or five percent. Yep. Um, so yeah, there's a real split uh, there um, on, on the risk curve.
1: And if you go if you go one click deeper into the you know non earning or non no, no profit growth mm-hmm. technology stuff, I mean, it's down 40%, forty fifty. in many cases.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think the indexes actually are really concealing the amount of damage and pain that's out there. There is so much more hurt than people realize, or, well, those who are feeling the pain well know, but if you look at how many, um, let's say, growthy names... Uh, which you would know, have rich valuations on a conventional measure are just so many are down 50 to 80%. I mean, dozens and dozens of stocks. It's pretty amazing. Yep. And a lot of them are very solid companies too.
1: I think, I can't remember who said it, but like, I love the idea that there's no company so good that a bad valuation can't ruin its investment prospects. And I think we're seeing that play out. You know, you price something at a hundred times earnings or a hundred times sales in many cases, um, it's hard to earn a good return from that starting point. that's what we've seen so far.
0: So one thing I was curious about now, um, a lot of tech companies often score well on counts of ESG. Um, and what's really interesting with what's been going on in the market is that, well, as we mentioned, tech stocks, have a lot of them have gotten battered. And then a lot of companies like oil stocks are doing exceptionally well. They're the only sector, I think, in the S&P 500 that's up this year um and even though coal companies are a tiny part of the economy um i think spot coal prices are at a record high and whatnot so the interesting situation is that a lot of these esg friendly companies are suffering mightily and a lot of the companies that you know frankly are not helpful for the environment are doing well in terms of that tension is there anything that you perceive that with people like sticking to their guns with esg are there people who are maybe you know picking uh abandoning let's say stated principles and saying screw it i'm going to go with oil stocks i think they're going to go up i don't know if you have any like insight into that and it's kind of an open ended question
1: yeah the insight i would have is that the percentage of people and again the nice thing about having this platform is i don't have to guess at it like i just know the exact percentage of people that choose a given setting or don't it's just objective mm-hmm. it's only about 15 or 20% of people that we've seen and we think we have a very good cross section of styles of investors, geography, like we we have a good sample size here, including lots of investors or advisors that we work with that are really focused on ESG. So it's only about 15% or 20% of our accounts make active adjustments for something in ESG. It doesn't have to be oil and gas. Often it is uh, because of its relationship to climate, which is sort of the biggest ESG issue we see. Um, But it could be around things around gender or um, social uh, causes or whatever. Mm -hmm. And uh, the answer is no, we don't see or expect a ton of turnover of those settings as a result of what's going on in the world today because typically for those investors who are obviously they're a very vocal minority meaning they care often very deeply about those settings and in many cases it's the single thing they care the most about yeah um, in their portfolio and i don't think those decisions change lightly exactly Um, so 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 i guess that would be my revealed answer is like Mm -hmm. it's a low percentage but it's a very staunch uh, low percentage that I, my guess would be stick to their guns. Right. I think it's a much interesting question, much more interesting question and very much beyond my expertise or pay grade. Like, wait a minute, does this mean that the best thing for ESG would actually be to pump more oil right now? Like, I think that's a really interesting case to listen to and think about, um, uh, for the long term, you know, health of, of, of the country and of the world and of the climate and everything else. Mm-hmm. Uh, like I said, it's way too complicated for me to wrap my head around, but but uh, an interesting question for sure.
0: In terms of insights into what people are customizing their portfolios with, are there any um, emerging trends that you're seeing? Things, because you mentioned you'll see things that you're not, you, surprise you.
1: Yeah, I, I would say there's one major one that's been, tr- it's, it's the major insight that I think we've had since we started this experiment, um, which is that 100, basically 100% of people that are taxable have some tax setting set up in their account in their strategy. Hmm. And and the big revealed insight, I would say, is that that extends far beyond just loss harvesting. So we started the conversation by saying direct indexing equals tax loss harvesting. That sort of is the value proposition. Mm -hmm. What we've realized is that there's tons of demand and value in other ways of managing taxes that aren't about generating losses. So it might be a very popular one is limiting gains. Uh, We have lots of people that say we want factor exposure but factors generate gains, right? Like factors equal turnover, and turnover equals taxes in the long run. Um, but we might see someone say, "I want an X percent exposure to factor XYZ, but I want you to limit my cap incurred capital gains to $100,000, or you know whatever it is, some some number, some raw dollar amount or percentage of the portfolio." And that is an extremely popular feature. It's not loss harvesting; it's a tax setting and limitation. Another one is, "Help me transition." from portfolio A to the Canvas portfolio in the most tax friendly way possible. Again, usually you're incurring gains, not losses as you do that, but there's an incredibly interesting way you can use technology to do that in a really effective way. Sometimes it's transitioned me away from a single stock that I own way too much of. And I don't want to go into an exchange fund. I don't want to do options hedging strategies. I want to solve the problem problem permanently. So pair losses elsewhere in the portfolio with gain strategic gains taken in my, you know, Accenture stock or my Facebook stock or whatever, and make it a tax neutral transition. Um, those are just three examples that we have seen pulled out of us over and over again since we launched Canvas. So I would say that the insight is, the trend is tax research and tax strategies that aren't necessarily just about losses in alpha, but are about other considerations too.
0: And I wanted to just bring up a couple of the, um, I don't know, concerns or criticisms of the of um, this, and one is uh, the bringing up a behavioral aspect. I mean, one of the one of the benefits of indexing is that you're you're not going to be tempted maybe to do a lot of meddling or you know med- playing with your portfolio too much. A little bit set it and forget it, which often is a, often the right thing, not maybe not perfect, but generally good. Um, what tell me about the potential risk for that, or that temptation to maybe get involved and make too many decisions where maybe. It's no longer a productive thing, right? There might be a point of diminishing returns.
1: Yeah, I mean, here again, maybe I would appeal to some some actual evidence that we've seen so far. If you compare our what I'll call churn or you know turnover, us getting fired in our mm-hmm. in our old active you know high active share quantitative strategies to the same experience in the same period. Uh, with Canvas, you see a drastic difference. So the Canvas accounts look much more like, I think you would see it like a Vanguard account or something or a BlackRock account or a State Street account, which is fairly low turnover that these are kind of buy and hold like investors. And you see buy and hold behavior in lack of, you know, account liquidations or turnover or changing ETFs or whatever, mm-hmm. which I think is kind of what you're asking about these behavioral um, changes or mis- or arguably mistakes. We-, we just haven't seen that with canvas like we do in a traditional active management business and i think that will remain true i think there's even a case to be made that there is better behavior with a custom index than you would see with a s p 500 etf or something like this because you can go in and make small tweaks which we definitely have seen people do and it seems to be that that is the stress response not liquidate Mm -hmm. the account and go to Mm -hmm. cash but rather like oh geez i have too much europe right now like can we dial europe down with a click of a button from 30% 30% to 5% or 10%, whatever it might be, um, we've seen that a, a good amount. And that seems to be their stress response behavior, which I would argue is good. It's good to stay invested for the most part in equities long-term uh, and not try to time things in and out. Um, and there's this sort of like IKEA effect that I always call it, which is when people have a hand in building something, which which they do in this case, they're they're, they're choosing something that's tailored to them. Mm-hmm. They, they tend to value it more. It's like a version of the endowment effect. And so what we have seen so far in canvas is unbelievably good behavior. Um, and frankly, in our old business, we didn't always see that, you know, flows would follow performance. Uh, mm-hmm. and when we had a bad run of performance, we would lose a lot of money. And when we had a good run of performance after the good performance, we would get a lot of money in, inflows flows from, from customers. I don't think there's any way around that in traditional active management. Yeah. And, uh, we've seen the opposite of that with canvas. So um, hopefully that addresses that concern. Yeah, but no, that, that point
0: one. that point actually resonates. I mean, if you buy a fund, um, actively managed or an index, it's really it's very much transactional. It's really devoid of any emotional dimension or affiliation. It's they're just simply trying to make money. And and to your point, with this, you're presumably investing in things that are near and dear to your heart. And therefore, uh, let's say you do underperform a little bit, it might not be that upsetting to the investor because they, they're, they're not in at 100% for the returns, though, of course, they want to make as much as they can at the same time.
1: Yeah,
0: 100%. Okay. So I did want to ask you, um, since we're getting a little bit near the end of the uh, program, to share an actionable idea, if you can, with advisors to help them better, better understand uh, custom indexing and how it might be able to help their clients.
1: Yeah. So... Um... Hard not to, to give a self-serving one, um, but I do think this is one that could, you could do it a lot of different ways that, uh, you know, we think we'd be good at doing, but but certainly wouldn't have to, which is to reorient yourself with what the factor profile of your investing accounts are. I think because factors sort of went out of favor, specifically the value factor went so out of favor, my, my sense being in the industry was that people kind of stopped caring. Um, they stopped thinking that factor profile uh, you know, the valuation of your overall portfolio or the quality of your overall portfolio or whatever, whatever the underlying factors that you're interested in are, um, didn't matter as much. And that what you were supposed to do is sort of ignore those things and that returns were driven by these outliers that could trade at whatever multiple for however long. And I think we're, we're gonna see a return to caring about um, the underlying factor profile of a portfolio. And very often the very first step we take is to, is to ingest everything that somebody owns other funds, ETFs, single stocks, SMAs, whatever. Combine them all and do an overall assessment Mm -hmm. of the factors in the portfolio. Mm -hmm. And very often what you see is a look of surprise on the other side, like, geez, I I wouldn't have guessed that the overall thing looked a certain way, and yet it does. And Mm -hmm. maybe that's not what I want. Or maybe it is what I want, I'm doing a great job. But I do think it's like this very, it's an actionable thing that you can do to say like, what do I really own here? Like, yeah, I own Amazon and I own Facebook and I own some railroad and whatever else. But like, what is the, what is the DNA of the portfolio? And is that DNA aligned with what I believe about, about markets or the world? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's for advisors especially, a great way to have a good productive conversation with a client or prospect is to frame it in terms of portfolio factors. Um, and so that's the actionable insight that I would suggest to go, go do that for your own portfolio or with a client, um, and see what you really own.
0: Right. Like almost doing a physical from top to bottom, right? I agree. Yeah. It's a very,
1: very good analogy. Yes. I'll start using that.
0: Okay. Well, my guest was Patrick O'Shaughnessy. And for more advisor specific podcast, please check out barons.com forward slash podcast for the way forward. I'm Greg Bartalis. This podcast is brought to you by Clearbridge Investments, Meet an evolving economy confidently with ClearBridge Active Equities, the foundation of a resilient portfolio. ClearBridge, a Franklin Templeton company. Go to clearbridge.com to learn more.